So we're nearly finished with our study of First Thessalonians, and we come today to the penultimate passage. So that is the next to last passage. We'll be in First Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. And as you turn there, how trustworthy do you find your best friend? Do you consider your best friend? How trustworthy? Uh, it is rare that we implicitly trust another person. What I mean by that, it is rare that we uh, approach someone else and actually trust everything that they say uh, and believe that they will do what they say they will do. Uh, and, and that may be for a variety of reasons. One is we live in a culture and an age of distrust, right? We are told consistently and constantly, don't trust, don't trust. You can't trust the news, it's fake. You can't trust your politicians, they lie. You can't trust the church because they're full of hypocrites. You can't trust the school system because they're out for their own interests. You can't trust businesses because they're out for their own interests, right? You cannot trust anyone. Uh, you can't even trust your own family, right? We, that's the, that's the message of our culture, right? Don't trust. Uh, and so perhaps that's why we find trusting others difficult. Uh, it could also be from failures, right? When we trust someone and they fail us, that makes it harder for us to trust them uh, and harder for us to trust others. It could be from our own untrustworthiness, right? We ourselves know that we are not worthy of trust, and so uh, why should we believe that anyone else is? And all of this is to say that it's hard for us to see in other people faithfulness. It's hard for us to see faithfulness, a reason to trust them. And yet, and yet, our calling in Christ is to be faithful first to God, right? We are called to be faithful to our word. We are to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We're not to take oaths, right? Because we are supposed to be so known for the trustworthiness of our word that we don't need to say, I swear on my mama's grave, right? We don't need to do that. So we're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful to our spouses. Right? We're called to be faithful to the church. That is the people of God. We're called to be faithful as even God is faithful. And that brings us to consider our passage today. And we might ask the question of God. How trustworthy is God? Do you implicitly trust that God will do all that he has said he will do. As Paul offers a closing prayer in his letter to the Thessalonian church, he calls us to consider that we are being made holy by the faithful God. And so let us read God's word this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 23. And this is the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So Paul has written this letter of love to the church in Thessalonica so that they would be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might be able to stand firm even while they're undergoing persecution from their own countrymen. Right, Paul has been praising God, thanking God for them and for their faithfulness to the gospel message. 
the evidence of their faith is their love for one another, their love for each other, their love for their neighbors. Uh, their evidence has been uh, of their faith has been their holding to the truth, still continuing to believe in the truth, even in spite of the persecution. And he has written to them, instructing them on various matters, uh, not the least of which is he spends quite a little bit of time uh, on the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, when Jesus will return and explaining that. Uh, in this last chapter, in chapter 5, he has been in giving some various instructions to the church uh, about their relationships with one another, how they are to relate to one another and relate to the world. And he has called them to evidence love for one another and for the world. And now Paul turns to this final closing of his letter, and he offers up another prayer to God for them. Paul loves this church greatly. And it, he shows it in his concern for their spiritual welfare. And so he prays that they would be holy and blameless. And so I want us to see that first in verse 23, holy and blameless, holy and blameless. Verse 23, he begins, now may the God of peace. So Paul prays this to the God of peace. And we might ask why the God of peace? Because he could pray, right? God of love or God of grace, God of glory, God of holiness. But he says God of peace. And we might briefly consider this. It could be because of what he has actually already instructed just a, a few verses earlier. Verse 13, the second half, be at peace among yourselves. So Paul has been calling the church to peace, and perhaps that's why he prays to the God of peace. You who are supposed to be at peace among yourselves know that there is the God of peace. Paul could be emphasizing that connection. We are to strive for peace. The author of Hebrews tells us to. In Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that second part of the verse in Hebrews strikes at what Paul is praying for the church. Right? He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He wants the God of peace to sanctify the church completely. He wants them to be made holy by God. And we've seen this issue of sanctification already come up in our letter. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is your sanctification. And in chapter 4, right, he gives that specific example, that specific um, outworking of what he is talking about, right? That you abstain from sexual immorality. But we might ask, and I think it's, uh, it's okay for us to ask this question, is if God's will is your sanctification, why does Paul pray for God to sanctify the church? If God's going to accomplish his will, right, do we believe that God can accomplish his will? Do we believe that what God says he will do, he will do? Well, if that's true, why does Paul pray for it? Why does Paul pray for what God has willed? Because if he's willed it, won't he do it? Yes, God will do all that he has purposed, but that should not stop us from praying for the very thing that he has willed. First John 5.14 
1 John 5.14 tells us, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if we know that God hears those prayers that are in accord with his will, how much more should we pray for those things, especially if we understand how important our sanctification is? Right. If we get, if we understand, if we consider the importance of our sanctification, our being made holy, won't we want to pray for it? And if we know that it is his will that we would be sanctified, how much more should we pray for it? And this is my prayer for you, church. My prayer is that you would be sanctified completely, that you would be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we might briefly touch here upon the nature of sanctification. And again, that word to, to sanctify or to sanctification is this process of being made holy. It's not an instantaneous moment, but it's a process. It's, it's something that takes uh, time and it's our becoming holy, our becoming like God. And the question is, of course, is this something that is solely the work of God or solely the work of man? or some combination of both. And we could go back to our discussion on 1 Thessalonians 4 when we talked about that a little further. But just briefly here this morning, I want us to, to see that we are told, for instance, in Scripture to work out our, our faith with fear and trembling. Or to work out. Work out takes effort, right? Uh, I mean, unless you're like a glam gym goer, uh, you just go there to look like you're going to the gym and, you know, Maybe do a couple, couple of things just to get a little sweaty, post on the Insta, you know, that kind of thing. I know working out takes effort, right? It takes effort. It takes travail. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. And this is important. This is we, 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 this is an easy place to get our answer. How does sanctification work? Whose work is it? Philippians 2, 12-13 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So I'll pause there and say, when I said that earlier, that's, that wasn't me coming up with that. That's what the scripture says. Work out your faith, your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul tells the Philippian church that sanctification includes both of them, right? It is them working out their salvation with fear and trembling, with due consideration of what it is they are called to be holy before God. But it is also God who works in them. Without God working in them, they could never work anything out. It is God who works in them both to will, right? Both to want and to actually do what he has called us to do. So it's God's work in us, which we begins that willing and working for his good pleasure. And so what Paul prays here in First Thessalonians is appropriate because God is the one who will sanctify us completely. It doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to do. Right? Indeed, what Paul has just said in chapter 5 tells us 
that he understands that, right? He has given the church instructions. Do this and don't do that. And he says here now, he recognizes, right? And he wants the church to recognize that as much as they ought to obey the commands of God, that it is only by the grace of God, by the work of God in them, that they can obey the commands of God, right? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And he enjoins this prayer for their sanctification that they would also be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be blameless is to be innocent. It's to be without blemish. It's to be holy and innocent. And so Paul is praying, be holy and blameless. Be holy and innocent until the Lord Jesus comes to gather his people. He is praying for the kind of church reminiscent of one such uh, man from the Old Testament that has a lot of history to him. And we don't have time to unpack it all, but I do want to note upon it. Job 1.1. 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So if we want to know something of what it means to be blameless, let us go and study the person of Job. And again, we don't have time for that uh, to look at that more fully, but in him was an innocence unparalleled on the earth. And more than that, Job instructs us on how it is that blameless persons might suffer. We also, though, need to comment upon the nature of Paul's prayer here, because he says, and you may have noticed, and it may have, may have triggered something within you, ah, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. And hearing this language, you might be wondering what Paul means. Because there is, within the realms of Christianity, within the realms of theology, and our discussion on the nature of man, uh, this question of, is man a trichotomy or a dichotomy? A tripart or a dipart? So, is man composed of spirit, distinct from a soul, distinct from the body, or some measure in between. And really, this is a question, uh, it's a broader philosophical question. Indeed, when we uh, come to uh, come to our world and our culture, right, there are many who will readily accept that man has a body, but does man have a soul? And the scripture says yes, but the scientism of our day says no, man does not have a soul, we are just uh, right, electrical impulses, that's the best that we could say. Uh, the scientism of the, na- the naturalism of our day would say man is only flesh. And we have to understand that there are those who believe that. But I'm going to leave that discussion aside because we don't have time for it again uh, today. But I want to focus on what we have in the scripture. So is man soul, spirit, and body or some combination or, or what do we know? Uh, I would say that our passage here, though it uses the language of spirit and soul and body, 
Uh, Paul is not intending for us to understand this to be that man has three parts to his nature. Uh, I would say that uh, man is made up of body and soul, or body and spirit. Soul and spirit being uh, synonymous terms. And I would say that for a couple reasons. The purpose of Paul here, when he uses these three uh, words to describe the nature of man, is just to describe the whole man. Paul is using these terms as an inclusive way of saying everything. He wants every part of the church, every part of the believer in Christ to be kept blameless. Not just a half of him, not just part of him, but the whole of him. He wants no part of them to be stained by sin. And so he's offering this prayer saying that both externally and internally, that they would be holy, ready for the day of the Lord. Uh, to get a little bit into the Greek, and I'm not going to go too deep into this and understand, so we're wading into it, and if you have more questions about it, we can discuss that afterwards. But the terms here for soul is the Greek word psyche, where we get our word, right, psyche. Uh, and the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. And both of these refer to the internal nature of man and are really close in meaning. And so this is to say, if we're going to go through the data of the scripture and we're going to evaluate the the uses of these two words, what we're going to find is they talk about a very similar thing, the same thing in similar ways. Uh, And so you would find that. Uh, Just briefly, Calvin, for instance, on this passage, on this question here, he says, Hence, when we find mention made here of the term spirit, let us understand it as denoting reason or intelligence, as on the other hand, by the term soul, is meant the will and all the affections. Right? So he's saying something of the distinction there. Another commentator says that soul or psyche is used of life itself as the seed of internal thoughts, desires, and emotions, or of that aspect of life that survives physical death. Spirit, which is pneuma, refers to the breath characteristic of life and thus also to the immaterial aspect of life. So what we can take is that these two words are shades about the same thing, the immaterial aspect of a person. So they describe the inner nature of man. Uh, And I'm arguing that we should not take these differences, these shades of nuance between the two words, to indicate that they rise to two separate parts of an immaterial person. Uh, and so if we want to make such an argument, this is just an aside, uh, we might have to make an argument for a four-part person, or if you ever want to know this word, you can use it later, uh, write it down and file it away, a quadripartite person, right? a four-part person. There you go, quadripartite. Uh, nature of man. Because, for instance, the scripture talks about flesh and body, and there are two different Greek words there. Uh, the Greek... Uh, for body is typically soma. The Greek for flesh is typically sarks. And so uh, if we're talking about these words that have nuances of meaning, then maybe we have four. We have body, flesh, soul, and spirit. Uh, but we don't typically see that argument made. All this to say, now that you're thoroughly bored and ready to fall asleep, now, now that we've We've thought about this a little bit. Should we divide over uh, this issue? Should we take up arms against the trichotomists? 
or if you're trichotomous, should you take up arms against the dichotomists? Uh, no, because faithful Christians have believed about the tripart, tripart nature of man and faithful Christians have believed about the dipart nature of man. So, right, this is not something to divide over. But then we might ask, if it's not something to divide over, then why does it all matter? Why did I just spend all that time going through it? Because it does go to our understanding of the nature of man, right? It says it's, it's something about us. It's, it helps us to understand what we mean when we talk about these various, uh, various aspects of who we are. It's important because it touches upon who we are. It's important because we see it in the scripture, and so we need to deal with it, right? Uh, we need to deal with it. What's most important for our understanding today in our passage is just this, right? That Paul is saying, Paul is praying for this church. He's saying, not only may the God of peace sanctify you completely, but may you be, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May your whole self, all that you are, be innocent on the day of the Lord. He is not praying that they would barely stand. He is not praying that they would barely make it to Christ's side. No, rather, he is praying the best for them. He wants for them the best. But that does raise a question. Why does Paul pray this for them? Because for some of us, we might think that the best prayer that someone could offer for us is God bless them with all of the material goods they need. Or bless them with physical health unparalleled. Or this is a church undergoing persecution. Why does Paul not pray, Lord God, bless them, bless them with peace that they would no longer be under persecution. Is it wrong to pray for those things? Is it wrong to pray that God would provide for us the finances we need? Is it wrong to pray for our physical health? Is it wrong to pray that if we're under persecution that we be delivered from persecution? No. But why is it that Paul doesn't pray for these things now? Paul wants the best for the church in Thessalonica, and we know that he does. He is greatly affected for them. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8 through 8, uh, says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Does a nursing mother want the best for her child? Yes, absolutely. Indeed, Paul says there, right, that the missionaries were ready to give of their own lives for this church. Paul and the missionaries love them and want the best for them. And the best for them is their sanctification. And let that sink in for a moment. The best for this church is their sanctification. He's actually already offered up one such prayer for them in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, this is the reason Paul prays this, right? So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Indeed, so what Paul is praying here, he's already prayed in greater greater length earlier. Right? He says, I want you to abound in love so that, to the purpose that, you would be kept blameless in holiness before God. Why is holiness so important? Why is sanctification, our being made holy, so important? Hebrews 12, 14 already told us. We, we heard that already, right? Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or how about John in the book of Revelation when he talks about the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. When he talks about the new Jerusalem, he says this in Revelation 21, verse 27. Revelation 21, 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, that is the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So if you want to enter into the new Jerusalem, you better be holy and blameless. If we have any hope of enjoying the presence of God forever, it will only be through our holiness and blamelessness. If we have any hope of holiness, listen closely, if we have any hope of holiness, it will only be because of Christ's work. Colossians 1, 21 to 22 tells us, Colossians 1, 21 to 22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the work of God. And so now we see why Paul prays this for the Thessalonians, why he prays, God, would you sanctify them completely and keep them wholly blameless? And notice the language too, even, just to remark upon it, on that second prayer request there, right? he says that they may be kept blameless. That's in the passive tense. He's not commanding the Thessalonians to be blameless but to be kept blameless god's doing the work here the missionaries love this church and they want them to be able to stand on the day of the lord jesus christ right that that at the coming of our lord jesus christ the church in thessalonica would be found faithful and true and standing standing by christ himself And as an aside here, here is a way that you can pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's another way that you can do that. Here is a way that you can pray for this church. Would you pray that God would sanctify and keep us blameless, corporately and individually? 
holy and blameless. This is what Paul wants for the church. And he prays to God who alone can accomplish this. He prays to God because he is faithful and sure. And that's the second thing I want us to see, that he is faithful and sure. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this is the great hope of our salvation. God is faithful. When we consider our sanctification, we rest in this truth. God is faithful. He will surely do it. Right? If God's will is our sanctification, then we can rest in the truth that He will do it. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or Paul reminding his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God cannot be unfaithful. He cannot deny himself. Because understand this, for God to be unfaithful would be a rejection of his very nature. And let me just go ahead and say that's an impossibility. If God were unfaithful, we would be unmade. Because the whole of this universe depends on the faithfulness of God. Jesus says that those whom the Father gives to him, those who are called to Christ, will never be cast out but raised up on the last day. He says this in John 6, 37-40. Listen closely as to God's faithfulness for your salvation. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He is faithful. He will surely do it. God's will is your sanctification, beloved. He is faithful. He will accomplish it. Paul, speaking of the Jewish people, says in Romans eleven twenty nine, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine, And as true as that is for the promises to the Jewish people, it is as true it is for us who are in Christ. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Cannot be undone. And I want to belabor this point. I'm saying it time and again. You may have thought I got caught in a loop. But I belabor this point, brothers and sisters, because God will accomplish His work in you. He will conform you to the image of His Son. He will surely do it. He is faithful to accomplish it. I belabor it because we need to hear this time and again. Because there is much in this world that says otherwise. The evil one whispers in our ear, did God really say? Sin deceives us into believing that it is more powerful than the God who promises our sanctification. 
And there are times when we believe the lie, we believe this lie, that sin is more powerful than God. That we are just subject to sin. No, the book of Romans tells us that we are no longer under the domain of sin. We are no longer under its dominion. We are set free from it. And yes, we still war against it. And sometimes we fail in, in the battle. We fall in the battle. But this is assured, our victory over sin. Never believe the lie. Never believe the lie that your sin is more powerful than the God who promises to sanctify you. It's a lie from the devil. And if our salvation rested only in our hands, we would have reason to be afraid. But it doesn't. Our salvation rests in the hands of a faithful God. Your salvation, beloved, is assured, not because you are faithful, but because God is faithful. He will accomplish all of His will. So fear not. And so when persecution presses upon you, stand firm in our faithful God. When calamity befalls you, stand firm in our faithful God. When the machines of war come rumbling down your street, stand firm in the faithful God and praise our faithful God. Praise Him who accomplishes all of His will. Praise Him who saved us while we were yet sinners and brought us into His kingdom. Praise God, for He will surely sanctify us. Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So Paul here in our passage offers a prayer to God for this church as he and the other missionaries have done time and time again. And he wants them to see, he wants to see them fully conform to the image of Christ standing firm on the day when Jesus returns for his bride, the church. And his assurance that they will be kept is rooted and grounded in the faithfulness of God. His hope rests in the nature of God. He knows God is trustworthy. And so he entrusts this church to the trustworthy God. But what about you? Upon what rests your hope? Who are you trusting in for your salvation? The author of the book of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside uh, every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Who is this Jesus? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus to be made like Jesus because He is faithful. All that God promises He will do. And the proof of this, the Bible tells us, is nothing less than the work of Christ Jesus. If we want proof that God is faithful, we need but look to Christ. Christ's coming, the Father's giving His only Son, is proof that God is serious in His love towards us. He is utterly faithful 
to all that he says. And we can and ought implicitly, without hesitation or waiver, trust God in all things. And listen, that's easy to say. It's hard to do because then it's difficult to do at times because we cannot even implicitly trust ourselves. We doubt God because we doubt ourselves sometimes. We fail ourselves. Others certainly fail us. And so we presume if we're like that, if others are like that, God must be like that. But he is not. He is always faithful. He will surely do all that he has planned to do, all that he has said he will do, all that he has promised he will do. Because every promise is yes in Christ Jesus. And what is it that he is working to accomplish in you, brothers and sisters in Christ? What is it that God wants for you? What is the best that he wants for you? What is he orchestrating every circumstance, whether bad or good, evil or nice? that he would sanctify you completely and conform you to the image of his son. He works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He, he is working that you would be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the amazing grace and work of God. He not only saves you, beloved, but he continues to work in you the fruit of salvation. And there is coming a day when you will stand before God in holy perfection, without blot or blemish, without stain of sin. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. You didn't accomplish it. God did. Christ Jesus did. The Holy Spirit did. For you. But as sure as God is faithful, to work out the fruit of salvation in his people. He is also faithful to mete out his divine justice on those who do not trust in Christ Jesus. If you do not believe in Christ Jesus as your Savior, God will visit upon you all of the terrors of his judgment. He who promised is faithful. He will surely do it. He will show you his justice for all the sin, iniquity, and transgressions that you've committed. In other words, God will punish you in every way for all of the evil that you have thought and said and done. If, however, you turn from your sins to him, if you turn to Christ, if you repent of your sins and believe the good news, then you will be saved from them. God will sanctify you completely and you will be blameless on the day of the Lord. You will be saved from the punishment of your sins. He who calls is faithful. He will surely do it. So trust in Christ Jesus today. Do not linger or wait any longer. Believe the gospel message and trust in the trustworthy God and walk in his ways. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your work. God, for, for all of your work of salvation from the very beginning, from your purpose and promise, from the giving of your son, 
for the giving of your Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the work of salvation that you are, that you are accomplishing in our hearts. And Father, we confess that we often, uh, Father, that we often get tired and lazy. And we think that our sin is insurmountable. But God, we think that you are faithful even when we get tired and lazy. God, we thank you for your hand of discipline which causes us to see and to recognize our sin. God, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit to cause us to to feel the guilt and burden of our sin that we may confess it to you. And Father, we thank you for the promise that you have made that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we pray this morning that you would sanctify us completely, that we would be kept blameless, that the whole of us may be kept blameless at the day of our Lord Jesus, when he comes to gather us, whether we're in the grave or alive and breathing, to be at his side forever. We thank you for your work of salvation. God, we thank you that you are faithful to the uttermost, that you do not give up when we give up, but you pursue us and continue to pursue us in love. And Father, we pray for those among us. We pray for those in our community who do not know you, who if you were to call them to account, they would die in their sins and trespasses and be cast forever from your presence. Father, we pray that you would have mercy and compassion upon them, that you would send your Holy Spirit to enliven their hearts, to cause them to be born again. Father, we pray that they would repent of their sins and confess their need of Christ Jesus even this day. Father, we pray you would do the work that only you can do. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise your faithfulness. We thank you for the surety of your promise that you will accomplish everything you say. Oh God, help us. Help us to be as faithful as you are. Oh, impress upon us the truth of your word. This day we pray in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus. Faithful and true is his name. Amen.